Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. We were in the first part of verse 6 last week, um, talking through the second part of it this week with the question that we must answer, what about Adam? Eve has been listening to the reasoning of the serpent in the garden for some time now. She stepped into this conversation with confidence in God's love, confidence in God's commandments. But through subtlety and persuasion, Satan casts doubt upon God's commandments, upon God's wisdom, upon God's goodness. The tree allures Eve through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, as we saw at the beginning of Genesis 3.6. And now Eve had a decision to make. Does she believe the God who said in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Does she believe what God said that they would surely die? Or does she assume this new line of reasoning that Satan is presenting through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? Where she does not believe that she will die if she partakes of the fruit, but much to the contrary, she will be elevated to the status of a God herself. She will be freed to realize her fullest potential. And so she comes to that point of decision. She is being tempted. She is being drawn away of her own lust and enticed. But will she yield to the temptation and lust or will she reject it? And of course, we read verse 6 last time, so we know the decision that she made. But let's read it again. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. The Bible says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her Excuse me. And he did eat. So the scriptures tell us Eve took of the fruit and she ate it. She yielded to the persuasions and the deceits of Satan. She partook of the fruit of which God had said not to partake. And then the Bible says she gave it unto her husband and he also ate of it. And today we're going to spend our time thinking about that. What about Adam? We'll see in verses 12 and 13 that Adam and Eve give their reasons for the decisions that they made, and we'll talk through that next time. But we're at a point where we should start to think through together what's happening with Adam. Our focus throughout the time of temptation has indeed been Eve, and that because Satan chose Eve to be the means through which to get to Adam. And notice how I describe that. Satan chose Eve as the means by which to get to Adam. Why did Satan need to get to Adam? Wasn't Eve a prize in and of herself? Well, in, in, from, a, from a, a kingdom perspective, as we've already talked about, from a satanic perspective, no. Adam has the headship both in the marriage and in the created order. For Eve to partake of the fruit does not bring Satan any closer, per se, in and of itself to the kingdom that he, he wanted. Satan believed that he could overthrow God. He was seeking to elevate himself above God. In order to do that, he needed a kingdom. He needed to, be, to have something over which to rule. He had nothing naturally over which to rule. God had given them him agency. God had cast him out of heaven but not destroyed him, not bound him in the bottomless pit like many of the angels who were disobedient. Uh, Satan is free to roam. However, he doesn't have a kingdom. He needs a kingdom. Adam is his way to that kingdom. Because Adam is the head over the created order, the delegated head over the created order. If Satan can get Adam to fall to sin, can get Adam to follow him, to submit himself to Satan's kingdom, to Satan's rules, to Satan's truth claims, then by submitting himself to Satan's truth claims, he submits the entirety of the created order to Satan's truth claims, and thus Satan now has a kingdom over which to rule. Satan needs Adam. Eve has no such authority. Now, we'll talk about headship in a few weeks a little bit more when we talk about God's curses upon um, the actors, Adam, Eve, Satan, and then the curse upon creation itself. But the idea of headship is that accountability rested with Adam. 
not with Eve as it related to not just his marriage, but the created order. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 11. We already talked through this in our marriage series. 1 Corinthians eleven three, Paul says, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. We see this tiered hierarchy of authority within the scope of God's design going all the way back to the beginning. As it relates to the New Testament church, of course, the head of that hierarchy is, is the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ, who is God. So we can say that the head of that, that the, the hierarchy is God. In the New Testament reality of that, it is Christ. And then under him is the man, and then under the man is the woman, so that every man is answerable to Christ. And obviously, there are other authorities in the lives of men. Government is an authority that God has ordained. The church is an authority that God has ordained. Fathers or mothers, parents are, are an authority that God has ordained. Employers are an authority that God has ordained. Uh, ordained, but in the context of the Christian man and, and uh, the Christian church, man sits atop the, the earthly hierarchy. And then he is a, a directly accountable to Jesus Christ. And then woman sits under the earthly authority of the man. Now, let's think for a moment about the nature of authority itself. When we consider authority, what most often comes to mind is power. The power to be able to do what you want. To have those who are under you obey your commands. When my children think of my authority or the, the authority of adulthood, they think of power. My children say, I can't wait until I'm big enough that I can have my kids so I can tell them what to do. Right? So I can make them do the chores. They see the privileges that come with adulthood. And they say, I can't wait until I'm grown up and then I can do what I want. And this is not an uncommon human nature idea to relate authority and, and, and privilege to power. But this isn't exactly a biblical view of authority, is it? Because in the Bible, yes, authority comes with power, naturally, naturally. But the focus in the Bible of authority is significantly more upon responsibility than it is upon power. From a biblical perspective, authority comes not just with power, but with accountability with respect to how that power is used. So Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, the second half of verse 48, unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. To whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Jesus is giving a parable here in Luke 12 of servants and faithfulness. And the conclusion is this, that to whom much is given, much is required. It is for this reason that James, in the book of James, warns his readers as it relates to church authority, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that they shall receive the greater condemnation. James exhorts those who are reading to not be so hasty to want to become a teacher in the church because when one becomes a teacher and authority in the church, that authority comes with accountability, which means that the person who has said authority will also receive greater judgment. Pastors have more authority in the church, yes. We wield a spiritual authority, I have authority over those who have submitted themselves to the membership of this church. I, uh, you, you, whether you've submitted yourself to the membership of this church or not, are, sub are submitting yourself to my teaching. And so there is a measure of authority as it relates to my teaching. But with that authority comes great accountability. I have an authority that you do not have. But I also have an accountability that you do not have. And before any man begins to dream about the opportunities that come with church authority, or for that matter, any other realm of authority, fatherhood, husbandhood, is that how you'd say that? Uh, being a, a, a boss over or having employees under you, where you are directly accountable for those, some under you. Even government authority. One had better fully and deeply consider the accountability that comes with it. Because you don't get one without the other before God. 
And so fathers carry this authority. Mothers carry this authority as it relates to their children. Employers, as I said, that's the biblical term of masters. You carry this authority. The Bible's call for masters to treat those who are under them with respect, knowing that they have a master in heaven. And we'll talk about this in our judgment series. We're going to be talking about the principle, with what measure ye meet, it shall be meted unto you. Paul invokes that principle as it relates to how masters treat their servants. And of course, as we said, it also applies to political leaders as well. National leaders have, since time began, had a propensity to lead as if everyone under them is beneath their notice or as if uh, their, their power is the operative part of their relationship with those who are under them. To lead at the expense of those under them rather than for those who are under them. And a representative form of government was supposed to fix this, but it only fixes it among people who are grounded in, of course, biblical values and are properly educated. Immoral and ignorant people seek representation from those who will tickle their ears rather than tell them the truth. And so an immoral and an ignorant people elect immoral and ignorant leaders, which is where we find ourselves in the West today. So if you want to know why we have immoral and ignorant leaders, it's because we have immoral and ignorant people who have put them there. But regardless, the Bible says that because the family and the church and government positions are positions that are ordained by God, the exercise of authority in these realms is a God-accountable Exercise, which means government authorities, societal authorities, family authorities, church authorities will answer to God for the manner that they exercise that authority. And again, we'll talk about the deeper implications of this related to humanity in the coming weeks as we talk more about headship and such. But let's draw this idea back into the text as we think about how Satan is going about his temptation here. Satan has approached the woman, Eve, has reasoned with her, has made his point to her, but she is most certainly not his target because she does not have headship. If Satan's objective is to take a kingdom, that kingdom is under the authority of Adam. He is the head. Eve's decisions affect her as a person, as a free agent, but her decision will not affect, in and of itself, will not affect the created order. But Adam's decisions will, because Adam is the delegated head over the created order. So if Satan is going to gain the authority of the created order, he's going to have to get to Adam. And he chooses not to go to Adam directly, but rather to go through Eve. Now, why is the question? Why did Satan adopt this strategy? And this is one of a couple of questions which we only have a shadow of an answer to, but of which, if we trust trust a measure of of, um, reason as well as understanding what else the scriptures tell us, a culmination of various evidences, we can lay out some thoughts that uh, that might help us understand the nature of this today. And that is going to form the bulk of our thoughts today as it relates to the nature of this. What about Adam? Well, Adam was there. Adam will make his choice. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But why? Why would Satan choose this avenue? Well, the first thought that I have on this is because good attacks avoid heavily fortified defenses. A staple of military tactics is that, if possible, you find the enemy's weak spots. You avoid heavily fortified defenses and perhaps find ways other than a frontal assault to accomplish a purpose. A direct attack upon Adam would perhaps have been quite an uphill battle because Adam might have been expecting something like that. But an attack from an area he would not expect, and I don't mean here, you'll see that as we continue, I don't mean that Eve is the weak spot herself. What I mean is that Eve would perhaps be Adam's weak spot. And we'll talk about why that might be through these other three points. So if Satan is going to come at Adam and try to convince Adam to do something which he would otherwise not be inclined to do, how is Satan going to do that? And then these other three concepts today are the thoughts that I have as far as propensities in the human heart that might lead to something like this, particularly as it relates to our interactions with others. And the first of these elements of human nature, and I talked about it a little bit last week, and I said we'd come back to it this week, is that sin loves company. 
Now, this is true from a simple interaction between two people. It's also true as we look broader into society. When sin is normalized, more people are willing to engage in it. When a person is relegated to sinning alone, he is less likely to do it or at least to continue in it because sin loves company. When people are doing wrong, they want other people to be doing wrong with them. And there's any number of reasons why this might be. One of the big ones is because that when other people are doing wrong with you, it helps dull your conscience. It provides a false sense of security. It dulls the conscience through the tactic of comparison, where the human heart finds more justification connected to actions when others are doing them. This is something that I marveled at when I was in high school. Uh, when I, w- I went to a public high school. It was a very large high school, about 4,500 students in the high school, a uh, large area. And um, I was always amazed at how willing the students were to be generous with drugs and alcohol. Now, those things are expensive. I get the same thing with the jail. Of course, with the jail, when it comes to dealers, there's another reason. It's because they give out drugs for free. People get addicted, and then then the money starts to flow, right? But I was amazed in high school at how often these young people would be willing to give away these things that cost them a good amount of money to their friends. Why? Because sin loves company. Because they can feel better about doing something when they can look around and find that everyone else is doing it too. We talk about that notion of peer pressure, right? The idea of peer pressure is not just the idea that the person who's not doing it is pressured to do something because everyone else is doing it. It's also the idea that I feel more comfortable doing something wrong when others are doing it. When I can look around me and say everyone else is doing it, so I feel comfortable doing it too. It feels much more valid to do something in the human heart, in the human conscience, if I'm not the only one doing it. And this is true whether the thing is right or wrong, isn't it? One of the reasons why you are here this morning, one of the reasons why you come to church, it's command of the Lord that we not forsake the assembling, so we are compelled to assemble together, but one of the reasons why you assemble and why you generally find your assembly, uh, your, your desire to assemble among those who share your, your perspective on the Word of God is because by finding others who are like-minded, you are provoked unto love and good works, right? You're provoked unto righteousness. And it's so nice to have that. Because you go out into the world and you go uh, out and, and the world looks at us like we're crazy for many of the choices that we make for ourselves and for our family. And we go out there and we have to stand against the, the tide all week of the things that are trying to encroach into our minds and into our hearts and into the minds and our hearts of our children, of our families. And we are all week, the, that, that, that tide is beating against us. Those waves are beating against us. And they're saying, you're strange and you're weird and you're abnormal and you're out, out, out of step with, with society. And then I get to come here on a Sunday and I am reminded that I'm not alone. That I'm not just crazy, that I'm not the only one that thinks this way. And after a whole week of being seen as crazy, I get to come here and I get to be with people that believe this book too. And that encourages me. And that strengthens me. And I look and I say, I'm not the only one. And I'm reminded of that. And I'm reminded that I'm not crazy. Well, it works the same in the opposite direction as well. Doesn't it? If I'm doing wrong alone, there's ample opportunity for my conscience to bother me. For me to have these thoughts that are wicked or perverse or sinful and, and, and to say, you know, this is a me problem and I have a problem and I want to fix this problem because this is the way I am, but I don't see the other people that are around me acting this way or, 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 or thinking this way. And, and this can actually be a problem in the church as well where we get so dressed up on a Sunday that we come and we have our problems and we look around and we say, man, why am I the only one with these problems and realize you're not the only one with these problems. 
So that can be a problem too. But from a sin perspective, if I can look around and see everyone else doing those things that are sinful, then my deceitful and wicked heart can look around and say, well, it must not be too bad if they're doing it also. If they do that too, and they're not doing too bad, and they seem content and they seem happy, if they're doing those wicked things, but when I look at their social media, they're always smiling and they're saying how good their life is, well, then I must be able to do that too. I can be in that spot too. I'm okay doing this thing. They still call themselves a Christian and they're doing these things, so I can do them too. But of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 tells us, for we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We dare not make ourselves of the number, of the number of those who are compelled to submit to this human nature idea of comparing yourselves to others and judging yourselves against the standard of another person. In doing so, Paul says, they do that which is not wise. When I compare how I am doing against how someone else is doing, I am being unwise. My standard is not you. And your standard is not me. Our standard is God's word. So to appease my conscience in something that I am doing or not doing, by comparing myself to another person is to place myself into a false sense of security in relation to reality. So the Lord is convicting my heart through the word of God that I should do something. And I look around and I say, but they're not doing it, so I must be okay. Well, maybe they're not doing it, but the Lord is convicting their heart too. Or maybe the Lord is convicting your heart to do something that the Lord has not convicted them to do. But if you... If, if you make others around you your standard, you're unwise. You will not stand before me one day and answer for whether or not you measured up to me in judgment. And I will not stand before you one day and, measure, uh, and answer for how, whether or not I measured up to you. But we will all stand before God one day and answer to the Lord. And of course, for we who are in Christ, Christ has measured up for us. We don't have to measure up. Christ is measured up and then we go into the realm of reward and loss based upon the extent to which we exercise faith in our lives. We'll talk about that in our time together this evening. Now, as it relates to Adam and Eve, however, we might imagine that there's more going on here because they're husband and wife. And we'll talk about that more in our next consideration. But for th this point, we're reminded that everyone, everything can feel to the human heart more justifiable when another is doing it. So the idea is this, that maybe Adam in and of himself, if he had to be the man of the house, if he had to be there for his wife, and he had to show her a good example, and Satan comes up to him and says, look, eat of this fruit, and he'd say, no way. We are not going to eat of that. But maybe if Eve eats of it first, then Adam can say, oh, maybe it's okay. She's doing it, so maybe I can do it too. She partook of the fruit, and she did not fall over dead. We'll talk about that next week. So maybe I can too. Sin loves company. And let this be a lesson and a reminder to us. The old stereotype, the old adage, right? The, the, the good fatherly conversation with their kid, where a child comes up and says, Dad, can I do such and such? No, you can't do such and such, son. But such and such as parents, let them do such and such. I know, son, but if such and such as parents, let them jump off a bridge, would you do it too? Right? And you have that prototypical conversation. But that prototypical conversation is a valid conversation, isn't it? I don't do, our family doesn't do because someone else does or some other family does. That is not the standard by which we operate. Perhaps the saying is a bit stale or a bit trite, but it's no less true. We humans are drawn to follow the crowd or to justify our actions on the basis of the fact that someone else is doing it. 
And this is not a good reason to do anything. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't look at someone and say, oh, wow, they are. They love the Lord. They're bearing fruit. They're doing right. Their children turned out well, whatever it might be. What did they do? And follow their example. But there's a difference between following someone's example or justifying your action simply because someone does it. If you go up to someone and you say, I want to follow your your example, what did you do to become successful? And they say, well, I stole a bunch of money. Okay, well, I want to be successful. I want to follow the example of success, but I don't, I'm not going to follow their method because it's unbiblical, right? And I can't simply say, well, they're successful and they stole a bunch of money, so I'm going to steal a bunch of money to become successful too. That's not, that's not how that works. And so this is not a good reason to do anything. The opposite is also true. The human heart can also be antagonistic by nature. Some of us, especially we Americans, like to pride ourselves in being naturally antagonistic. Well, if the people in power say it, then I'm going to believe the opposite just by principle, right? On principle, if they say it, I'm going to be inclined to not do it or not want to do it. So that if others are doing it, I'm predisposed not to. Being contrary is no more valid of a motivation to not do something than being a follower is a good reason to do something. If you want to be contrary, have a reason to be contrary. (laughs) Don't just be contrary for the sake of being contrary. That's just a rebellious heart. That's not going to serve you well. Let us live out of the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us live out of the, the, the fruit of that which is born in our lives by truth. Let us not simply live on the basis of following or antagonism, judging ourselves against other people to say, if they're doing it, I'm doing it too. Or if they're doing it, then I'm not going to do it. And let us instead have a deeper, abiding reason rooted in what God expects of us. So Christian, guard your heart against the tendency to justify things simply because others are doing it. Because sin loves company. So, good attacks avoid heavily fortified defenses. Um, Satan was going to try to attack Adam and get him to yield the kingdom. And one of the reasons how, or that, by which this perhaps happened, again, these are speculations this morning, based upon biblical truths, the, 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 the points themselves are not speculation, these are biblical truths, but the speculation is which one of these did Adam succumb to? A little bit of all, maybe something different, maybe, maybe, all of the, uh, maybe just one of them. And the first question was, well, maybe he succumbed to the idea that sin loves company. Because we know that sin loves company. The Bible tells us sin loves company. Maybe Adam, when he finally had someone to do it with him, said, now I'm on board with doing what I want to do because there's someone else to do it with me. Or maybe it's because, in our third point here, Because emotions cause us to do crazy things. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the world's misguided definition of love being simply an emotion rather than a choice. And when we define love as an emotion rather than a choice, then I can fall in and out of love based upon my emotional entanglements. And we define that as love. Now, and I, and, and I said from the word of God that that is not love, that love is a choice to do what is best for an object of your love to another, regardless of self-interest and regardless of circumstance. That does not, however, mean that those emotions don't exist, right? It just means that those emotions aren't true love. Now, in our vernacular, in our culture, we call those, that emotion love, and that's fine. Our culture can define those words however they want. We see that today. I mean, it's making words not mean anything, but they can do that if they want. However, it's not how the Bible defines love. But that doesn't mean that emotions don't exist. And that does not mean that emotions are not a very powerful motivator in the heart of men. And it doesn't mean that this is even a bad thing. This is by God's design. It's wonderful, is it not, spouse, when you can be emotionally attached to your spouse? It's kind of nice that you don't just have to choose to love your spouse, but that, particularly because we live in a, in a culture where you can choose your spouse, you can actually marry someone that you like. It hasn't been that way in a lot of cultures. In a lot of cultures, 
You didn't get to marry someone, to choose who you were going to marry and thus marry someone that you inevitably liked. But you would still be accountability, accountable before the Lord to love them. In our culture, you can both love and like them. How wonderful is that if you do things properly? And that emotional connection is a wonderful thing. Emotions in and of themselves are not sinful or anything even akin to sin. They're expressions of our humanity and expressions of the image of God in us. God relates himself to us in emotional terms, doesn't he? God talks about loving us. God talks about rejoicing over us with joy. God talks about weeping for his children. God gets angry. God gets jealous. God expresses happiness. We are not designed by God to be cold and emotionless creatures. And the pervasive value of the arts in the church, the fact that we spend the first 30 minutes of our time in the morning, well, only about maybe 10 or 15 minutes of that 30 minutes, but that we spend time singing first thing in our, in our service actually is an expression of the value of emotions to the human heart. Songs, music, is a, by, by its very nature, it is an expression of emotion. Some of the most valuable parts of Scripture to most Christians are the Psalms and the Proverbs. And they are deep expressions of emotion. And so emotions are a wonderful thing. They're an important thing in our lives. But when emotions override truth, when we allow emotion to override reality, to cloud the senses, this is when people become vulnerable. And nowhere is that vulnerability more apparent than in family relationships. My emotional connection as a husband and a father to my wife and my children is deep. And the depth of that connection means my judgment and rationality is susceptible to being overridden by my feelings. My ability to make decisions can, if I'm not careful, be impaired by the emotional connection that I have to my family. And we have evidence that Satan attempts to use such emotional connections not just to family, but to many parts of this world to attack us. We can think of, say, the life of Job, where when Satan comes to God and asks God to be able to uh, test Job, God says, yes, you may do so, but you, must, uh, but you may not touch him. And so Satan touches everything around him. And he touches his goods and he touches his possessions and then he touches his children. And Satan seeks to, through his goods, his possessions, which, by the way, his goods and possessions, it's not just a representation of materialism. Your goods and your possessions, at least for a subset of society now, not all of society, but your goods and your possessions actually represent blood, sweat, and toil, don't they? The things that you own are the things that you worked for. Again, not all of society, but... but, but I would imagine at least I should hope that the people in this room, as it relates to the way that we are supposed to relate ourselves to society biblically, you're supposed to work for what you have. Which means the things that you have in your possession are actually a representation of your time and your effort. Which means especially for men, for whom most likely with, with the majority of us, it is your time and your effort that went into the money that you earned, that went into the things that you have, those possessions do actually represent more to you than just things. Those possessions represent a large portion of the commitment of your week to your effort, to your... When you, when you, when you, when you wake up with those aches and pains, those aches and pains are a casualty, are the side effect of your effort to provide. Right? You could sit on the couch, eat potato chips, and probably not have the same number of aches and pains that you feel at the end of a work week. But the, those aches and those pains are, are a representative um, sacrifice that you're willing to make in order to bring about the, that which is necessary to provide for your family. And so when Job lost his things, he didn't just lose stuff. 
there would be an emotional connection to that because that represented his labor. And then, of course, his children, who were his children. Enough said, right? Enough said there. And so Satan sought to get to Job through the emotional connection that he had to the things in his life, hoping that by destroying them and removing them from Job, Job would then be tempted to and would succumb to the temptation to curse God. We can see it and say the account of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verse 22. Also, as it related to possessions, in that case, we see the, the idea that the rich young ruler had many possessions, so he was sorry when Jesus said, the one thing that you lack is to sell all of your possessions and follow me. So if Satan can use a man's connection to his possessions to keep him away from following the Lord, Satan will be very happy to do that because there's an emotional connection to those possessions. We see an example of this at Demas. Last week we talked about all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. There was something in the world that Demas became emotionally connected to, so much so that he forsook the ministry of Christ and forsook the support that he had given to Paul in order to pursue whatever it was that his heart had rested on in this world. Emotions can cause people to do crazy things. And none of us knows what was going through the mind of Adam on that day. As I said, perhaps it was just a sin loves company idea that Adam wanted to do this, but he, there was no one to do it with and he needed to be a good example to his wife. Then his wife does it and says, okay, now we can do it together. Great, let's do this thing. Or perhaps he saw that Eve ate the fruit and understood what she had just done uh, maybe said, uh-oh, now she's in trouble because she just ate of the fruit. And he determined in a fervor of romanticism that he was going to join her in her consequence, kind of a Romeo and Juliet type idea, right? That he was going to uh, uh, Romeo himself for her sake. I don't think that that was the case, but possibly. It, it's, it's happened before that a man or a woman has thrown themselves in destruction in the name of some emotional attachment, that they have hurled themselves into wickedness, into shame, into sorrow, into, in, in, into all number of suffering out of some emotional connection to something or someone else. This happens. At the jail, I see it all the time. Emotions can cause us to do crazy things. And so that's possible as well. But again, I don't know that that is the case. I think it's more likely that Adam did what we find several men do throughout the Bible. Each time with the same negative results, and it's still connected to emotions. I think if, if emotions had to do with it, it's more likely that what happened here is that Adam chose to yield his headship and the responsibility that he had to his wife, to yield to her decision on this matter, to use her desire and her faulty reasoning as an excuse to rebel. See, decision-making is hard. Consequences can be dramatic. But if I, as, my, as a husband, can yield the decision-making process to my wife, then maybe I can feel better about making a decision because if things go bad, I'm not the only one to blame. And the reason why I think this is more likely the case with Adam is twofold. First, as I said, we see this happen several times in Scripture. Adam perhaps yielded his headship to Eve here, but we see the very similar thing happen with Abram, don't we? And Sarai, where Abram has been told by God that he's going to have a child. And over the course of time, Sarai comes to him and says, I'm barren. You're not going to have a child through me. Take my, my handmaid, Hagar, and have a child with her. And Abram yielded his headship. It says that he, he listened to his wife, and he took Hagar, and he had a child with Hagar. And the negative consequences of that decision are dramatic. Now, Abram knew better than that. But... There was an opportunity here, perhaps something that, that he would not be 
that, that, that would be um, favorable to him anyway, having another wife. He, in a carnal sense, would probably enjoy that very much. And now his wife is, as it were, giving her approval to it, even suggesting it. And though Abraham knows that it is not the right thing to do, he yields his headship to his wife and allows her to make this decision and does not contradict or overrule it. We see it in a manner with the example of Deborah and Barak in the Judges, do we not? Where Deborah compels Barak to go and fight this war. And Barak says, I will not go up except that you go with me and that you, be, that, that, that you lead in, in this, this manner. And there are consequences to the fact that he yielded his headship. And so we see scriptural examples of the yielding of headship, and this seems to be a very natural example of such a thing, where Adam sees Eve make a decision, and now the decision has been made that takes the pressure off of him. He can now, if you will, blame Eve and still get something that he wants. And husbands will do this. A husband knows, because he is the leader of his home and the Lord guides, he knows that he shouldn't have something. He knows that he shouldn't do something. And then there comes some point where something that he wants, which he has never indulged in or whatever it might be, maybe it's buying something, and he's never bought that thing because he knows that it would be irresponsible for him and it, they don't have enough money and, and it would be wrong of him to do so for the sake of his family. And then at some point, his wife suggests, maybe we should buy this thing. And he is right there, ready to do it now. He's always said no to it because he knows it wouldn't be best for the family. But now that his wife says, maybe we should do this thing, he yields that headship. He allows that to be his excuse to do what he knows he should not do, and he does it. It sounds a lot like maybe what happened here with Adam. Adam liked what he heard, but would he have done it had Satan come to him directly? Don't know. But God, uh, good attacks... Avoid heavily fortified defenses. But if Adam could effectively yield the decision-making to his wife, she makes the decision. All he does is go along with it because the decision has already been made. And maybe that's the reason why when God said, what hast thou done? Has thou eaten of the fruit? He says, woman whom you gave to me. We'll talk more about that next week. She, she ate of the fruit, then she gave it to me. And second... The twofold reasons why it's likely the case that he yielded headship. First, we see biblical examples of this. Second, and we'll reflect upon this a little bit more in another sermon. Adam did, and next week, as I said, Adam did in fact reflect this upon Eve. Adam sat back and yielded the decision making process to Eve, yielded his headship to her, and men will do this when they want the thing that the wife suggests or wants as well even when he knows that that thing is not what is best for him or for them or for the family. And this is not to say that the woman cannot play an integral role in a decision-making process in the family, nor that women make inherently bad decisions. I'm not saying any of that this morning. But that Adam had the responsibility by God's design and ordination to make this decision, and it seems as though he yielded that to his wife. And this kind of brings us to our, our final point this morning. First, we, we see that good attacks avoid heavily fortified defenses. And as we think through what those defenses might have been and then why Satan attacked in the way he did, why did he go through Eve? Well, first, perhaps because sin loves company. Second, perhaps because emotions can cause us to do crazy things. And, and Satan knew of the emotional attachment of Adam to his wife. And third, the third possibility is quite simply because it's possible that he attacked her because, and I'm not saying that the point is possible, I'm saying it's possible that Satan attacked this way because, and this is a definitive biblical point, because Eve was more susceptible to deceit. Now, every time I bring this topic up, it comes with a very strong need to be clear because we live in a culture that has fought heavily and has fought in a protracted manner battles for various elements of equality. And because we now live in a culture that fundamentally confuses the idea of equality with equity, equality meaning that we are all equal before God, equity meaning that we are all the same before God, 
Equality is a wonderful thing and a biblical thing. Equity is impossible, irrational, and unbiblical. So, in a sense, what I'm going to say today is uncontroversial, biblically. But it's an uncontroversial topic that has been made controversial through social conditioning. To that end, I urge you to hear what I am saying, not what you think I'm saying. I urge you to listen to what I'm saying, to not filter what I'm saying through the lens of, of, your, of, of any sort of societal preconception. God made men and women equal, but he made them different. As a general rule, men are not better than women. But as a general rule, men are stronger than women, right? As a general rule, women are not better than men. But as a general rule, women have attributes that they are better at than men, such as, say, multitasking as a general rule. Men and women are both made in the image of God. Men and women both carry natural human dignity. Men and women both stand equal in the eyes of the living God. Men and women both have autonomous spirits. Men and women can both have a personal relationship with the living God. The Bible teaches us through Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that in the church, for believers, there is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, but we are all one in Christ. Not saying that there aren't hierarchies in the institutional church. Not saying those things, but saying rather that before the eyes of God, every soul is equal. Man and woman. But just because we are equal does not mean that we are the same. And this is the difference between equality and equity. You're hearing those words a lot today because everyone's pushing for equity. The idea that everything has to be the same. Everyone has to have the same opportunities. Everyone has to have the same advantages. Everyone has to have the same stuff. And this is, of course, a Marxist, socialist, communist idea, which is not only unrealistic in practice, but is unbiblical. Now, we are not all the same, but we are all equal. But God has given men and women different propensities, different abilities, different strengths, different weaknesses. And here's the one in question today. Different roles in life and society. Women are designed from the ground up to be caretakers, facilitators, and supporters. History bears this out. Human nature bears this out. They have the biological equipment necessary to bear children and to provide for those children that men do not have. They have the emotional temperament to care for children through compassion, patience, gentleness. Women are designed as a general rule to be better organizers, better multitaskers, better facilitators of things. This is not how society has conditioned women. This is how God has made women. Men are designed from the ground up to be providers, creators, and leaders. They are taller. They are stronger. These are the biological realities. In the same way women have been given the biological equipment necessary for the role that God has designed them to fulfill, God has given men the biological equipment, equipment necessary to, to fulfill the role that God has given to us. Men have a drive within them to explore and to discover in a way that most women don't connect to or even understand. This is not how society has conditioned men. This is how God has made men. These are observations rooted in history, but also in doctrine. And neither one is better than the other, only different. And one of the fundamental problems in our society today is that people are becoming increasingly unwilling to accept the way that God has designed us. The way that I am may have fundamental disadvantages in certain spheres. I personally have a fundamental disadvantage when it comes to playing the game of basketball. Because I am not a tall person. I cannot make myself a taller person. This is the way God made me. And I can rail against this, and I can start organizations and protests, and I can rail against the fact that basketball is a tremendously bigoted and discriminatory game because it doesn't regard the feelings of little people. But it is not going to change the fact that the way that I have been made puts me at a fundamental disadvantage in this area of life. I can, I can 
I can rally the world around changing the game of basketball to lower those nets to eight feet so that I can touch the rim. Probably can't even dunk at eight feet. But I can maybe touch the rim. And I can rally the world around that. And they can change all the rules of basketball to make it to where I might be able to be a little more successful at basketball. But it's not going to change the fact that I am not a tall person. That will not change. That is how God made me. So I am at a fundamental disadvantage in this area of life, but it's also not going to change the fact that a taller person is at a fundamental disadvantage in other areas where a shorter person might might have advantages. And either way, it's not going to make the taller person the better person, is it? Or the shorter person the better person. For every advantage that one has, there might be a subsequent disadvantage. These attributes are not a statement of worth, only of my standing in society or reality as it exists. Men and women are different. Maybe our society has elevated certain roles to being more important. As a matter of fact, in our society, because the dollar is king, because materialism is the end-all, be-all, because hedonism, the, the, the pursuit of pleasure, is the god of our society... Yes, when it relates to materialism and hedonism, men are at an advantage in society. Always have been. Because men are the providers, men are the creators, men are the facilitators, men are not the facilitators, men are the providers, men are the explorers, men are the leaders. Those who have the authority and the power in a hedonistic society get more of the goods. But that's only because of what society values. That the, vow, that, that the positions that men hold are considered the better positions. Maybe our society has elevated certain roles of being of more worth than others, and so those who don't fit well into those elevated roles feel like they are at a disadvantage. But this is an illusion rooted in an emotion, not in the reality as God has designed us. Men have been designed to lead, And the teaching we have on this is specifically rooted in God's design for the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 says this, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So women are not allowed to be teachers or authorities in over men in the church. This is by God's decree and by God's design. And Paul gives a reason here, and the reason he gives actually goes back to Genesis chapter 3. First to Genesis 2. He gives two reasons here. And the first one is in Genesis chapter 2. That Adam was first formed, and then Eve was formed. And this idea of precedence in time establishes the first basis of the principle of headship. God created man first, Because man was given the position of head, of leader, in the family and in the created order. So we see first that because Adam was created, then Eve, man has this this designed authority and headship. But then he gives a second reason. He says, second, because Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, and so was in the transgression. Now some would say through this, that Eve was to blame for the fall. And I do not believe this. I think this is short-sighted. You all know my thinking on this. We'll talk about it more in another sermon, but I think the Bible is very clear in my, the way I read it that Adam is at fault for the fall of the created order, not Eve. Adam was the accountable one, not Eve. But Paul does connect the fact that women are biblically disallowed from being teachers and authorities in the church to the fact that Eve was deceived, which tells us that Paul is making a connection between what Eve did on that day, follow me here, and women today. You say, well, why is Paul, or why is the church institutionally causing all women to not be allowed to hold these positions of authority and teaching specifically because of something Eve did. 
Well, by the church doctrinally holding the church to that standard, the scriptures acknowledge that what Eve did, she did not just because she was Eve, but because she had because of a propensity of femininity, because of a pro propensity of womanhood that carries over not just it's not just an Eve, but it carries over from generation to generation. So that what Eve did is actually prototypical of femininity. It is not just Eve's decision. I hope that makes sense. That's what 1 Timothy 2 is telling us. That Eve's decision was a prototypical decision. It was something that is common and inherent in femininity, in, in womanhood. Which is why when God ordained the church and established its hierarchy, he established specifically the fact that women are not to teach or to usurp authority over the man. Eve was more susceptible to deceit, and that is because women are more susceptible to deceit than men. And no, this is not an attack on women, and no, this is not saying that women are inferior to men. They are different. But this is saying that in this particular area of decision-making, women are more susceptible to deceit. Well, pastor, you must not have met my husband. You must not have met my father. Yes, but exceptions don't prove, disprove rules. Exceptions do not disprove rules. And we could think through the reasons as to why. And we might be right about those reasons or we might be wrong. As a general rule, we know that women tend to be more sympathetic, more empathetic, more emotional in their decision-making process than men tend to be. Some women get angry when they hear this, but other than social conditioning, I really can't understand why. It's absolutely true. And this doesn't mean women can't lead. This doesn't mean women can't make decisions. But it means that women are at a fundamental disadvantage when it compares to men because of the propensity of their God-given nature. In the same way, me being five foot ten and maybe a little bit more does not mean I can't play basketball, but it will mean that I am at a fundamental disadvantage when it comes to the game of basketball. That doesn't mean every once in a while you're not going to get some five foot ten guy who is playing the game, but you're not going to get a whole lot of them because it is a rare thing. It is an exception, and that exception does not disprove the rule that being tall helps you in basketball. Every once in a while, yes, you're going to get a woman who is able to fundamentally detach herself from her emotional state and make good decisions and, and, and in this way better decisions than a man could make. But that fundamental exception does not disprove the rule. God has given these things to men and women separately. And because, men, uh, because women are at a fundamental disadvantage in this area because of the propensities of their nature that God has given to them and has given to you women for good reasons, for proper reasons. This is a good thing, not a bad thing. You have a role in society and that role is yours to fill. God has given these to you specifically to fulfill the role that God has given to you in society. He has equipped you for that which you are designed to fill. Our society sees that women are drawn to professions such as caretaking and education and men, they dominate other fields such as computers and science and math. And when society looks at this, they say, this is appalling. This is because of some fundamental discrimination in the system, systemic discrimination against women in the STEM fields because there's so many men in engineering and women are doing things like nursing and, and, and doing things like teaching. And there must be some fundamental discrimination against women without ever stopping to think. That may be the reason why women are in education and are in caretaking and men are in engineering and these sorts of things is because of a fundamental difference in the way God has made us. Maybe this is a propensity of, design, of divine design, not cultural conditioning and discrimination. God has created women to play a vital role in society, essential the essential role in society. Today is, in fact, the day that we regard that essential role in a unique and a special way. God has designed our women to be mothers. 
Now, that does not necessarily mean that if you can't or you aren't a mother, that you are not living up to womanhood. God has different roles for different people, and we understand that. But it is down to the very nature biologically that, that we have that obviously God has designed women to be mothers, to be facilitators, to be supporters, to be caretakers. And this is not an inferior role. It is less glamorous, and that's society's fault. The fact that society does not recognize the essential, uh, the essential necessity of women as caretakers, mothers, and facilitators in our society is society's fault, not women's fault. Your, your role, though, is less showy. It's less dramatic, less romantic, if you want to say it that way. But it is by no means inferior. It is just different. And women who are able to identify the way God has designed you, embrace that design, embrace those differences, are going to thrive. Because instead of trying to be a second-rate man, you get to be a first-rate woman. If we try to hold all of society to one standard which says you're only successful in society if you make a bunch of money and you're completely autonomous and you, you get to be the CEO of a company or you get to create these things or whatever it might be, we are holding all of society to a standard which God has not created all of society to fulfill. There are different roles in society. If in the military a guy is, is assigned to be a part of the supply line. And then when he goes for his promotional review, his superior looks at him and says, I see that, that you, didn't, uh, you didn't drive many miles in the Humvee uh, on any missions. How many missions did you, did, did you, did you do? Sir, I, I'm, I'm a part of the supply line. Well, if you didn't do any missions, no, no promotion. Why are we holding all of society to the standard of something that God has designed half of society to do. The, the man who's assigned to the supply lines gets judged based upon what he has been trained to do, not what others have been trained to do. Our society is attempting to judge women and society's treatment of women on the basis of men, as if women, the, 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 the pinnacle of what a, women ought, what a woman ought to become is what's, what God has ordained men to be. Don't fall for it, women. Don't spend your life trying to live up to God's design for men. Live up to God's design for women. Not only will you be where God wants you to be, but, but, but you will be content there. So the final possible reason for Satan's attack on Eve rather than on Adam because she was more susceptible to deceit. And in fact, she was deceived. And then, how that relates to getting through to Adam? Well, maybe it was emotions. Maybe it was sin loves company. Probably, I would say, was the simple opportunity now to yield headship, to get what he wanted while not having to take full responsibility for it. But either way... Eve saw the fruit, she ate, she gave to her husband, and he ate as well. So what about Adam? Adam was there. Adam was listening. Eve was deceived. Nowhere does the Bible say Adam was deceived. Much to the contrary, it would appear that Adam knew exactly what he was doing. And maybe Adam was surprised by Satan's tactic of going through his wife rather than directly through him. Maybe Adam felt more compelled to do what he did because of his love for Eve or because she was doing it too. Maybe he was so emotionally invested in her that his judgment was clouded. Maybe she provided an adequate excuse. But one way or another, the Bible makes clear that Eve was deceived. Adam made a choice. He yielded his headship on some pretense. He made the wrong choice. And then in the verses to come, we'll see that he lives out the consequences of his choice for him, for his wife, and indeed for all of creation. Because choices have consequences. And Adam would stand before God for his choice. 
not for his wife's choice. He will do so. And for us today, it's our opportunity to learn from the failures of this situation. It's our opportunity to learn from the failures of his decision-making process. It's our opportunity to draw from it the principles of God's design, of God's intent. It's an opportunity for us to make sure that our relationship to one another in society, between male and female, is proper in this church. It's an opportunity for us to be warned against the various ways that our decision-making process, either men or women, can be clouded by things such as peer pressure, the desire to be like others because sin loves company. It's a good reminder to us that our emotions can cloud our desires. This is why we don't want to make decisions when we're in the heat of an emotional moment. This is why, young people, when you start to emotionally invest in another person, you need outside influences. You need others in your life who are outside of the emotional entanglement to give you advice. And you need to listen carefully to that advice because you must understand that you will not You will not be thinking clearly when you are emotionally invested because emotions can cause us to do crazy things. It's a good lesson for men as it relates to headship and the importance of us keeping the headship in our families and not yielding that headship to our wives. And it's a good reminder to uh, the women as as it relates to the nature of the way that God has designed you, that God has not designed you inferior in any way, that society may judge your role to be inferior. But mothers, you have the absolute most essential role in society. Mothers are essential to society, the essential role in society. Women, you are not inferior. Women, you have a role. It is just a different role. And thank God for that role. Thank God for our mothers. Thank God for our women. And for those who have assimilated the design of God into their lives and accepted it with grace and with dignity and aligned themselves with God's design for it. And may we do that in every element of our lives. May we align ourselves with God's design and God's intent knowing that it is the way he has designed us, indeed for our best good. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.